It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. We're back after our summer hiatus. My name is Sarah Mulhern. I'm a faculty member at the Institute, and I direct Created Equal, which is the Institute's research and education project on gender and the ethical use of power. I'm excited to be guest hosting Identity Crisis this week as we record on Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. On today's show, we're going to talk about gender, power, and COVID-19. So early in the pandemic, I remember hearing a lot of talk about how we're all in this together. And while there's certainly some truth in the idea that the nature of contagion is to spread and the pandemic impacts all of us, what we've really seen is very much the opposite, that the physical, economic, and social impacts of the pandemic have, in fact, impacted individuals and affected societies in ways that are highly differentiated on the basis of gender, race, and maybe especially class. So today I'm excited to open a conversation on the ways in which the many and likely enduring social and economic impacts of COVID-19 are playing out on very deeply gendered lines. Some of the questions I hope that we can explore together are things like which enduring gender justice issues in the world and in the Jewish community are being highlighted or exacerbated by the pandemic and its knock-on effects? Can there be and is there any progress being made around gender equity in this challenging moment? And just generally, how is our world and our community changing in ways that may have surprising and unexpected gendered impacts? So I'm thrilled to be having this conversation with two incredible leaders in this work, Sheila Katz, the CEO of the National Council of Jewish Women, and Shira Berkowitz, president and CEO of Sacred Spaces. So first of all, thank you both for being here. I want to start with a topic that I imagine you can both comment on, both from your positions as watchers of gender trends in our society, but actually specifically as leaders of institutions and employers. And that's the question of how this pandemic is impacting women's workforce participation. So with the collapse of childcare, schooling, elder care systems throughout our country, and for a myriad of other reasons, we're in a period where I know I'm feeling, I think a lot of us are feeling that the demands of domestic and caring labor have increased dramatically for a lot of Americans. And since we know historically that this kind of labor consistently falls much more heavily on women in our society, this obviously impacts the amount of paid work that women can do and are doing. So Sheila, I'll start with you and just ask if you can comment on how these trends are impacting your employees and your organization, and also how you see them playing out more broadly. And specifically, I'd love it if you have thoughts on not only how do we smooth the sort of short-term impacts of these challenges, but what can we be doing as a community to prevent large numbers of women from dropping out of the labor force long-term, which I think is fair to say we're seeing that happen, and it could have 
generations long negative impacts on the progress that women have made in the workforce. So in short, Sheila, what are you seeing and, and what should we be doing about it? It's such a great question about childcare. And I guess before we jump into it, I just have to start by painting the picture of why this is exacerbated even more, which is that women make up the majority of essential workers in our country. Nine out of 10 nurses, two out of three grocery workers, more than 50% of the jobs that have been lost, I think it's about 54%, have all been held by women. And in government jobs, it's two thirds of the 1.4 million jobs that have been lost are by women. And so we have this little bit of a one-two punch of the depletion of childcare options and the closure of service sector businesses that are dominated by women, which is really leading this entire crisis to be a female recession. And some people are nicknaming it the she-session. And it really does disproportionately impact women all around. And I think starting by talking about childcare is so essential because what we've learned from this that we've known from before is that particularly in heterosexual couples, that women are still doing the majority of the childcare. Overall, hands down, While there's been a lot of change in our country, there's still both an expectation that women do the child care, there is a cultural sense that women must do the child care, and within people's own personal relationships, whether it's a choice or not, is a longer conversation, there's a push for child care. So when our country is attempting to reopen and they have no plan for child care, that is impacting women and non-binary and parents in general, their ability to get back into the workforce. And so we see this time and time again, that some of the equity issues that we have, that we have to decide on, you know, really what our values are at the end of the day, are about whether or not we want to be allowing women to have more options. And of course, we are going to say that they should have more options. And more options mean making sure that there are childcare access in this country. Might it have to be reimagined? in the wake of COVID-19? Of course. But we have been advocating for legislation to be passed, giving money to the child care sector, and time and time again, it's not happening. And so first and foremost, I would say this is a great first legislative issue for folks to take on if they haven't been doing any legislative action to be making sure that child care is a part of COVID relief packages, um, which they can certainly do through NCJW. We have scripts and links. But if we don't fix what's happening with child care right now, the long-term impact is that the child care industry will collapse. And the long-term impact for women and non-binary individuals who would like to be working is that they're going to have less options. So this is a, a critical, critical moment for us to be focusing on how important making sure we have access in these spaces actually is. Shira, anything to add on this, what you're seeing as an employer or as a worker or in the society? Yeah, I think she provided the context and where we are in the moment in history quite well. So I'll just add from the field some of the things I'm seeing. I'm hearing colleagues say that compassionate bosses are saying, take the time you need. We understand that you might be caring for dependents, and that could be children or elderly or individuals with special needs. So we'll be flexible. And yet at the same time, they're still continuing to schedule important meetings right during bedtime routines. And when an employee will say something like, I'm sorry, I can't make that time, the boss is very understanding and kind and says, don't worry, you don't need to show up. But then that continues to place these individuals 
overwhelmingly women in a position where the setbacks from COVID, they're carrying them disproportionately. So that is one example, and they continue to fall behind. I'll share personally, I'm a woman running an organization that is comprised of other women. And if there's anybody who should be well-positioned to set her team up for success, you could argue it should be me. And we are doing everything we can at Sacred Spaces to support our team, trying to be compassionate, to understand where each employee is coming from, instituting flexible work hours. Some of us start work before the sun rises. Some of us end work in the wee hours of the morning. Some are doing both transparent dialogue about our organization's finances, schedule, workload, policies, encouraging people to take a break. We have unlimited vacation hours, and yet we know that people don't take them. And so instituting days off, we're using all of these opportunities to connect, to check in. And even with all of this, and me scouring every article I can possibly find, joining lots of conversations about this, we are deeply struggling. We cannot keep up. I cannot keep up because it is not possible to keep up. What Sheila just outlined for us That's just the reality, and it's not humanly possible for a person to be a primary caregiver to also, if this is relevant, homeschool their children, and then on top of that, to hold a full-time professional position. And people who began at a greater disadvantage to begin with, they are the ones who are experiencing exponentially more disadvantage now. So if you can't afford a nanny... If you're not able to work at home, if you have to be outside of the home, all of these are issues that just exacerbate it. So uh, I wish I was answering with something more hopeful, but I'm reading so many people saying if we just talked about this, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that we are talking about it, and I still don't see the solutions happening on the ground. Sure, I think that's so helpful. There was an article circulating recently with a potentially unhelpfully provocative title, something like, you know, it's not COVID's fault that women are dropping out of the workforce, it's dad's fault or men's fault, which I think made the important point that it would go a long way if men did equal amounts of domestic labor. But it fell short of, I think, what both of you are saying, which is these are sets of social choices. We could have, before the pandemic, decided to build a society which thought of child care and elder care as a social good and invested in it. We could have, during the pandemic, decided to prioritize these systems rather than prioritizing opening other kinds of businesses. So I just really want to appreciate the way in which you both highlighted that there are such complicated personal and interpersonal choices here, and also that this is a political and a social issue that it's going to have to happen on a really big scale and that one kind employer can't fix it. Yeah, it dates back decades and decades of the cultural moment that we're in and what people are willing to do and what they're willing to accept. We know in the workplace, women are asked to do more menial tasks and it's more expected that women get the coffee and it's more expected that we're going to step up in certain ways and it's more expected that we say yes. And there's data that shows that when women don't say yes in the workplace that we're seen negatively, but when men say no in the workplace that they're seen as setting boundaries and they're a leader. So we're, we're navigating all of these other things that have been here long before this moment, but it's being exacerbated. 
One of the reasons we advocate for family leave policies in the workplace, strong family leave, is because people who are choosing, have the ability to have children, should be able to have choices within their career to remain in their career. One of the earliest reasons we see women drop out and why the gender wage gap continues to exist, it really escalates in the 30s and 40s, is because women leave the workplace because of parenting. And it's not because usually in a couple situation, what the data says is it's not that they're sitting there with dad saying, well, my job is more important. But what's actually happening is he's being paid more because we don't have equal pay for equal work in every single sector. And you better believe in the Jewish communal world as well. Women are paid less than men. And until we fix gender equity around pay, we're never going to be able to fix any of these other issues. If you want to know the foundational cause of all of it, it's that from the time people graduate college and take their first job, nine men are making more. 90% of men are making more than women from the first job, which should be the easiest to pay equally. So my advice to organizations, make sure you're paying people equally right out of college. That should be a non-negotiable moment. And if you're going to negotiate with men, you better go have a moment where you go back to some of the women and say, you know, this guy over here asked for a thousand dollars more and I want you to know that and I'm going to give you this thousand dollars. Part of the value system of operating and running an organization shouldn't be left to say, well, if that person doesn't know to ask, we don't give it to them. Because culturally, we've been programmed to think that we shouldn't be asking, and it's a problem. And that $1,000 difference right out of college leads to hundreds of thousands of dollars over a lifetime and leads exactly to the moment when women are often making a decision that it's less expensive for them to stay home and take care of their kid than to stay in the workforce because of what they're paid and because we don't value childcare and we don't have easy systems for people unless they make lots and lots of money. So money at the end of the day is power. And I would say one of the things we're starting to see with the gender equity and hiring project and other people right now on the Facebook group for women, Jewish women and allies, is this demand to say, if you're going to post a job in the Jewish world now, you best be posting a salary range because who does it harm when you don't do that? It harms women and it particularly harms black women. And we need to make sure if we're going to commit to an equitable workplace that we're doing these very simple things that actually matter at the end of the day. And if you're going to have salary ranges, that probably means your whole organization has to have a salary range and it should be transparent. And the last Last thing I'm going to say, getting me fired up about this, is I've heard my whole life how complicated this is for CEOs to do. And I want you to know within two months of being CEO of NCJW, we leveled our salaries, we shared what the salary ranges were, we adjusted everybody's salaries, and we did it at the expense of me hiring in some new people. But I have to say to my fellow CEOs that there's never a convenient time to do this work and you have to do it now. And it's going to be easier to do it now than to do it in the future. And especially with us all being hit financially from COVID, we have to make certain commitments and making a commitment to be transparent about salary bands, to create salary bands and to label salary bands on job descriptions is at the root cause of almost all of these challenges that we have around gender equity in the workplace. So I want to follow the thread of transparency and turn to another topic where it's so crucial, 
which is the question of safety from gender-based violence and gender-based harassment in our workplaces and in our communities at large. So Shira, your organization is dedicated to helping Jewish institutions make themselves into spaces that are free of those kinds of harms and protected from them. And I'm just very curious to hear about how that work of building safety in institutions looks differently as institutions shift their work into a virtual world. How is making a Zoom-based school safe different than making a physical school safe? It's a great question, right? Because organizations are now spending a tremendous amount of money and time upgrading their web platform, purchasing or renting new building space so that they can have um, proper social distancing measures in place, right? And so there's all these pivots happening in the wake of COVID-19 so that we can be safe. And it requires exactly that question being asked so that we remember to prioritize and to think about safety in multiple forms. Some of the very measures that people are putting in place to increase safety in terms of transmission will decrease safety in terms of abuse prevention. So an example of that might be that when camps this summer were trying to create smaller groups or pods and they'd say, instead of this bunk with two or three staff members, we're going to create a small group with one counselor that meets in the forest instead of meeting in a public campground. Wow, well now you've just isolated youth alone with an adult in a remote location. So that would be a way of prioritizing the safety of COVID and not understanding the impact and the consequences that that has. So I would say as a general rule, one of the things we need to realize is that the very behaviors that exist in person, they exist online too. And so we keep hearing from people who say, oh, we were going to be doing the work of abuse prevention, but now that we're in this online programming stage, it's not a priority for us. We'll pick this up again when we're in person. And what they need to realize is that the same threats exist, the same behavior exists, only it's presenting in new ways and sometimes unique ways. And there are some additional risks that weren't present before. So people are being given access to other people's home space in intimate ways. And some people are taking that as an invitation to invade in ways that are inappropriate and sometimes harassing. So for example, we're hearing cases of, let's say, a rabbi on a Zoom call offering a pastoral counseling session saying, hey, I've never gotten to talk to my congregants in bed before. Or knowing that female presenting and non-binary folks are uniquely monitored for their physical appearance. And so that's continuing, only in some cases it's escalating because you're joining a Zoom call early in the morning and people are saying things like, look how nicely you pull yourself together at 7.30 a.m. And though that's meant as a compliment, we're automatically starting a conversation talking about somebody else's appearance. So those are some examples of what we're seeing. And then there's also the unique factor. So we have cases where staff are using Zoom as an opportunity to groom others for abuse. They have access points that they never would have had before. Cases of teachers who are told, check in on your students, a beautiful notion. But then they're using that check-in to schedule alone time. It's happening late at night. In the case of adults, we're talking about, let's say, a boss sending a text message at midnight to an employee. And how is this even been happening. Well, in our effort to say we want to be flexible with our work hours, what's happened as a result is that all hours of the day and night have become 
work hours and it's fair game. Now, at the most basic level, that's an abuse of power to be texting someone at midnight and telling them what they have to do. But on a more nefarious level, if somebody was looking to abuse another sexually, well, the boundaries have just completely been blurred already. And so there's that sort of dynamic that is happening as well. That all makes a lot of sense, as painful as it is to hear. Another concern I wonder if you can speak to that I've heard repeatedly voiced is the question of how, you know, as our lives have shifted to be more home-based over the last six months or so, for some of us, home is not a place of safety. And there have been concerns that there might be a spike in domestic violence. And I'm just wondering, share from your expertise, has that been occurring? And if so, has the Jewish community been responding? And, And what is that looking like? So the answer is yes. Helpline calls have increased while mandated reporting calls have decreased because mandated reporters are having less interactions and access and ability to identify early warning signs. And so those calls are decreasing. There's an increase in demand for emergency shelters. Rain, which operates the largest sexual assault hotline in the U.S., reported that they had their highest demand for calls in history. And in May and June alone, half of the visitors to Rain's hotline, which sees some of the most urgent cases, were minors. So we know that this is happening. We know that people who have been in difficult situations before, that this is exacerbated right now, and especially in the beginning of the pandemic, when people were isolated and people were saying, stay safe, stay at home. Well, stay safe, stay at home matters for some people, but for other people, being at home is the least safe place for them. And the answer is not to then say, you need to leave your home. That's that's not the solution to domestic violence. So there are lots of ways for organizations to address this issue. And one thing I would note is that it's less and less clear today where the organization ends and where the home begins. And so it's always been the organization's responsibility to care about the entirety of a person, whether they're in the workforce or at the synagogue or at home. And yet we seem to draw these very contrived boundaries, if you will. And now that's just not possible because people are working from home and school is happening at home. So in many ways, it's giving people a window, a glimpse into the lives of others, which brings with it this very fraught situation. We need to be extra careful about boundaries that are being blurred. And at the same time, we need to recognize that we can't dismiss things that we're seeing that are really concerning. And so we've had organizations that are doing remarkable things like standing up rabbis at the pulpit or their virtual pulpit talking about this increase in domestic violence, the increase in reports of abuse, and the need for community members to stand up and to become trained and to check in on one another. I'd love to add, I mean, we have to talk about domestic violence in this moment. There is a surge. I think people who are vulnerable at home are even more vulnerable now. And I think you said it really well, Shira, around that everything is just exacerbated. And we know that the vulnerable before are now in horrendous conditions and people who are fine before, many of them are now vulnerable and we have to respond to that. And so in the space of domestic violence, the thing I just have to point out is that there was a lot of talk about what's essential and what's not essential as we started moving into quarantine 
quarantine around COVID. And the fact that guns and gun stores and gun sales were considered essential. Meanwhile, we can go into abortion in another moment. Abortion clinics, not essential, but buying guns are. It really was super problematic. And you better believe that there were people getting guns in order to threaten their partners and to use inappropriately in these moments. And and it was a problem here and it's a problem in Israel, especially since the nature of the organization that you're at, Sarah, I just want to name that. I think it was in June, a National Council of Jewish Women in Israel with our fellows there, we organized a massive protest around domestic violence with thousands of people because there were nine women in a span of two months that were murdered by their spouses. And the government wasn't doing enough to make sure that the domestic violence organizations had the resources they need, that domestic violence organizations were able to receive people the way that they needed to. They weren't being classified properly. And we're seeing a similarity here in the United States and in Israel in that. And the reason I want to point out that protest and everything that happened in Israel is because sometimes I find that the chatter among Jews in the United States is really only around geopolitical lines in Israel, but they also are experiencing several, if not all, of the same issues around gender and gender-based violence as everyone is in the United States. I'm not going to say it's better or worse, but in this case, I was actually surprised. It felt like this silence from American Jews that this issue of domestic violence in Israel didn't resonate as an issue that we should be speaking up about. And so I just want to name that the National Council of Jewish Women were often very isolated and working around gender-based violence in Israel. And I would invite folks who are Zionists who care deeply about Israel to also be working on gender issues there as well and to pay attention to the fact that the number one thing we hear in the United States when we start talking about domestic violence is, oh, we're so lucky. This doesn't happen in our community. And anyone who says that is wrong. It happens everywhere in every community. And we all have to be aware of what people we know might be going through. We all have to be aware of what the warning signs are. And of course, I'll have to end around policy. Nationally, we wrote the first Violence Against Women Act and put it through. And we co-authored this now second Violence Against Women Act that still is not pushed through. These are things we need to be aware of and loud around because the fact that the Violence Against Women Act hasn't even passed in the culture and the climate that we're in is just absolutely nuts. And we all should be working on pushing those things through because there's protections for these kinds of organizations. There's protections for people. And we really can make sure there's a safer environment for really the most vulnerable in the times that they need it most. I'd love to follow up on one thing you just said there, Sheila. You said there are the people who were vulnerable to begin with, it's exacerbated. And the people who maybe never were in this situation before are under chronic stress. And to take it from the national level for a moment to the communal level, you're talking about how communities say this doesn't happen here. And I think it's very easy, even in our own minds, to think about the abusers as if there's some category of people, the other, and to not realize the potential for all of us to start crossing lines, whether with ourselves or with the people we know. So I just want to make it very real, which is to say that on a part of the chatter I'm seeing on social media, we're seeing people who are saying we are under chronic stress right now and the coping mechanisms that they are outlining can be called nothing short of abuse. It is abusive to the dependents who rely upon them. And instead of us as communities calling it out, what's happening is that people are saying, 
give yourself a break. That's okay. We're all under stress right now. And so there's this tension here of we need to be supportive to the people who are experiencing the stress and also need to understand that all of us are now in positions. We've always been in these positions, but that abuse is happening probably right next to you that you might not be recognizing. And one very powerful thing that an organization did when we noted this on a webinar, it was a day school who went out, made a short two-minute video directed towards parents and said, we know you might be experiencing stress. And also, maybe some of what you're doing to cope with that is abusive. And it was the first time we had seen a Jewish organization name two parents, you yourself might be the abuser, and then very quickly in a two-minute span say, here's how we can help you. And it was incredible what one organization could do. So Sheila, I want to lift up because you mentioned it and because they think it's deeply linked, the question of reproductive health care access, which obviously falls into the category of an enduring issue. It's not a new COVID problem, but I'm wondering if you can just share briefly with us about how that topic is changing in a time when our medical system is so overwhelmed and in general access to services and health care is really challenging right now. So what's going on specifically with reproductive health? I mean, I feel like I'm going to make everyone a lot more sad right now. It's really, really hard and it's really, really bad. There were all sorts of bills coming out before COVID restricting abortion access. And a lot of legislators have used COVID to be able to push through their agenda around shutting down abortion clinics. And I got to tell you, people still get pregnant in a pandemic. And the conditions, especially as we're talking about economic conditions for women, we're talking about violent conditions about women, we're talking about a lot of women who just don't want to have a baby in this moment, whatever their reason. They should be able to access what we would classify as time-sensitive medical procedures. And what was happening in the beginning of COVID is that some of the laws were changing. You know, most Jewish organizations benefited from PPP loans. The only group that weren't able to access PPP loans were abortion clinics and anyone who totally focuses on abortion. They were not allowed to access those government grants, which is just nuts. And then we start seeing these different regulations come in, some of them just deeming abortion non-essential. So if you live in a state and your abortion clinics have been deemed non-essential, which by the way, many abortion clinics do many other things other than abortion, but that's a whole other conversation for another day. They had to figure out what am I going to do and how am I going to get to another state in the midst of a pandemic and navigate this? There was an op-ed in the New York Times detailing somebody's 800-mile journey to get to the first open abortion clinic and along the way finding out that it might close because of the laws that were changing day by day by day. We're dealing with all these laws that were in place beforehand. Like in New Orleans, there's a 24-hour waiting period for an abortion and that is totally not medically necessary. It's just meant to be there to dissuade people from getting it. And it sets up a tone that if you're white and you can afford a 24-hour stay in New Orleans, which is a pretty expensive city, then you can then go get your abortion. But if you live somewhere several hours away in a more rural area and you're coming in, you have to have a place to stay. It's all meant to make it so that there are less abortions. And so this was really, really deeply problematic. And it was particularly, as abortion always has, been impacting black people who can get pregnant. 
And I try my best to say people who can get pregnant because trans men can get pregnant. This isn't only a women's issue and it disproportionately impacts black people and the laws were disproportionately impacting black communities. So if people say they care about systemic racism, people who can get pregnant being able to make decisions over their own bodies, that's actually a really important part of it. So it's been pretty abysmal to see the laws that are in effort and we've been pushing as hard as we can to be advocating to talk about it, to really talk about the upcoming vote around the Hyde Amendment and appropriations to try to get it out, because that basically says anyone on government insurance can't access abortions, which really translates to black people who are on government insurance can't access abortions, and that's a problem. It's a racist law, and it needs to go. So those are some of the things that we've seen, but picture a vulnerable person, you know, whatever their reason, whether they experienced domestic violence and want an abortion, whether they got pregnant unexpectedly and they just don't want to have a child. We know the number one reason people have abortions is because they already have children and they don't want another kid, whether it's economic or they're just not ready for another child. So to force people to be pregnant, to force them to not be able to have a time-sensitive procedure is one of the most traumatic things you could do to somebody in their body to make it so that they don't have a decision. So we have a ton of work to do. These laws are still coming out. It's still not that much better. We had a win in the Supreme Court, which was good for now. It bought us some time. But I do think we launched a new campaign called Rabbis for Repro, where we're inviting clergy to actually double down on this as a Jewish issue. Judaism permits abortion and sometimes requires it. And there's different interpretations of what that looks like based on different religious beliefs and interpretations. But at its core, we believe that if somebody who's pregnant, if their life is at risk, that they should be able to have an abortion. And we want Jews to start talking about it because the religious narrative in the mainstream is that religion and abortion don't go together. And it's just simply not true. And so we have close to a thousand rabbis signed up and we're really looking forward to be working and training them both through our partners on a reproductive justice lens, which centers this work around black women. And second, to make sure that we're challenging them to say, we know this is seen as a political issue. Let's not make it a political issue. Let's make this a values-based issue, just like almost every other justice issue Jews take on and see if we can make an impact here. But it's worth noting We all love someone who's had an abortion. We all know someone who's had an abortion. And these last several months have been particularly painful for people who have wanted to access this time-sensitive medical procedure. So for our last question, I want to sort of zoom us out to the bigger picture of the Jewish institutional structure, which is to say as follows. It seems clear to me that the American Jewish community is going, both because we're creative, but perhaps primarily out of economic necessity, we are going to have to restructure and refocus in significant ways as a result of COVID and all of its economic and social impacts. And I suspect that's not going to be an organized, centralized process, but it is clear to me that there will be power brokers and rooms with closed doors where people are going to make generationally impactful decisions about what are the priorities of our community and which organizations are going to be enabled financially and politically to survive and which are not. So Shira, I'll start with you, but I'd love both of your thoughts in closing about who has the power, who's going to get to be at the table for these conversations, what kinds of leaders and types of organizations do you think are going to be winners and which are going to be losers? And overall, what can we be doing as a community to make sure that these processes help rather than hurt the work that we're all doing to make our community a place that is safe and equitable and respectful for people of all genders? So Shira, I'll start with you. 
That's a big question, Sarah. I'd say it that a question. <laughs> at the start of it, we, we need to shift um, from thinking about this in terms of win and lose, I would say, to healthy and equitable communities and organizations for all. When we start to do that, we see that leaders are not necessarily the people who are sitting at the helm of the most established organization, but rather we can find leaders in communities, leaders who are on the ground doing things, their voices are being heard. And we're seeing this a lot right now with the racial justice movement. And so we need to see this across the board. We need to take lessons and learn from that at a micro level on an organization-by-organization basis, one of the things we do, because our work is to combat abuses of power, is we structure our work with the formation of a committee because you can't respond to an abuse of power or a concern that someone has abused their power by then centralizing power further and saying, trust me, I am dealing with the report of the abuse of power that you've made. Instead, what we need are processes, policies, and systems to address those abuses of power. So that's at a very organizational level. In the same way that that is true for abuse of power, it has to be true for reopening and restructuring communities. Who is making those decisions? What voices are at the table? And in what way are you inviting others to be a part of that. I'm thinking specifically about victim survivors. What role do they play? Sheila talked about the ways in which people have limited access to reproductive health care, while at the same time, victim survivors have limited access to courts, to organizational responses. So they're being told, you need to wait till COVID is over and we can reopen and address this. What we're seeing is that in this murkiness of restructuring, in this murkiness of will we even be able to survive another moment with our financial instability, somehow victim survivors are coming forward and saying like, as you're raising these major issues, I need to point to the systemic abuse of power. And so it might not be intuitive to think of these two issues as related, but what we are seeing is that organizations are almost at the tipping point of can they make it another day in COVID? And then these issues, which may have been going on already, are coming forward now because they are relevant now. So I would just say who's out the table at that most basic level. And then in terms of the greater system for the Jewish communities, I'd say fundamental patterns haven't changed. Those who have had the power in the past continue to have that power. We're seeing this with funding specifically, where funders are stepping forward and saying, we're going to make emergency response to COVID and we'll make these funds available. But who's getting those funds? And in many cases, philanthropists are doing amazing things. For example, the Safety Respect Equity Coalition made an emergency COVID fund to provide support to organizations, for example, for sacred spaces to provide pro bono consultations in wake of the abuse that's happening right now. And yet at the same time, people who have wanted to talk about these issues are talking about them and funding them. And the rest are continuing to use this as an opportunity to continue to fund established organizations. So I'm going out on a limb and saying that here. I would add they're funding established organizations, but not necessarily established organizations run by women and for women. And there's a lot of discrepancies in the way philanthropists work that play into the stereotypes. But just to build off the table analogy, Shirley Chisholm famously said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. So I think as we analyze the power situation, all of us need to be aware, do we have a seat at the table? If not, how do we pull up that folding chair? Which these days can be done through social media. You don't have to get an invite to the table to be able to have your voice heard. 
Two is if you have a seat at the table, who's not there? And particularly as we are all white on this podcast today, I want to name that I think one of the most important roles for white people right now and white women right now is to be making space for black women and people of color in general, whether that means giving up our seat or whether that means pulling up the other chair so that they have a seat right next to us. That's a really important component if we want equity in the workplace and in our communities. And a reminder to women that we are the majority in this country. We are the majority voters. We are the majority population. And if we want change to happen, we can make it happen, but we have to participate in the process that sometimes is intentionally oppressive to us. So voting didn't come up and we're nonpartisan, but I just want to say there's an important election coming up and we all have to do our part to make sure, and not just because of the presidential election, because of all sorts of other things that we get to vote on, including thinking about the impact on our federal courts as a result of who we put into power. So I just want to encourage everyone to make sure that you're registered to vote and come up with a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C around voting because voting suppression right now is happening and we really have to have multiple plans for how we're going to make sure we participate actively in our democracy. And the two best pieces of advice I can give you if you want to make sure to protect the vote and promote the vote is there's a shortage of poll workers in this country right now because the majority of them are over the age of 60 traditionally and they can't come out to be poll workers. Where is this the most problematic? In low-income communities where the lines are going to be the longest and voter suppression is going to be the highest. So sign up to become a poll worker in a low-income community to make sure that everybody has access to vote. It's an easy thing you can do. Most people get paid. You don't even have to be able to vote. You could usually be 16 in most places and be able to sign up as a poll worker. So if you're younger, if you're healthy and not at risk to COVID, sign up to be a poll worker. And two is, you can go to our website to find all this stuff and find these links. We are partnering with Vote Forward letter writing campaign to people who traditionally don't vote. This is the number one data point that says people will vote if they get a letter or they get a phone call from somebody telling them why it's important. They'll actually vote. So we have the power to get an increased turnout. And uh, we're lucky enough that in, I guess, uh, two weeks from now, we're doing an event with Stacey Abrams to be talking about voter suppression in this country, to talk about the intersection of voter suppression and systemic racism. And she's going to be doing teaching and learning and helping people understand what they can do within the last few months before the election to make a commitment to protecting and promoting the vote. So I'll just end by saying that I think in some ways attempting to find silver linings in a period where there's so much suffering is a little bit of a distasteful project. But also we've had so much bad news. And as a rabbi, I've inherited the tradition that you should always end with a note of nechemta, of comfort. And so I'm just wondering if in a sort of quick couple of sentences, either of you can share some good news. Are there any places where progress is being made right now, either despite the changed context or maybe even because of it? So Sheila, I'll let you fire a quick answer first and then Shira. I'm glad we get to end happy. Here's what I'll say. Judaism also holds the good and the bad all the time. When you're at a wedding, you break the glass, you remember destruction and your happy moment. So I think we have to hold both of these together. And and I'll just say we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, giving white women access to vote. It wasn't until 1965 that black women had access to vote. And I think in these moments and celebrations, historically, we're reminded of the fact that we weren't born with this inherent access the way men were in this country. And black women weren't given the same access as white women were. And I think every single issue we're working on now, we're so much further ahead than where we were when you look back 
back 100 years ago. And we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that racial justice and systemic racism, racial equity is at the core of how we're moving forward. And I actually really believe with the talent that we have in the Jewish community, with the acknowledgement finally that Jews of color exist and are beloved and should have access to leadership opportunities, I think with them at the helm, we're going in really, really exciting places. Great. Shira, what's giving you hope? You have the last word. <laughs> okay. Um, look, just as we're seeing increases in certain kinds of abuses of power, both happening at home and happening in organizations, we're also seeing them step up at this moment in time, particularly, and reach out. They're saying, we recognize this not just as a problem, but as an opportunity right now. And what do we do? And in some cases, they're doing deep assessments where they're looking at the unique risks that are being presented right now at this moment in time, and they're doing complete restructuring of their organizations so that when they're thinking about reopening or they're thinking about post-COVID, they're building into the very structures, safety, policies, training, and even though this sounds so obvious, conversation and dialogue. And some of the most powerful things that have been happening are when clergy or leaders in institutions step out from behind their desk, from behind their podium, and they just speak straight to the people and say, we know this is happening and we want to hear from you. And they are starting to name historic abuses that have occurred in their very institutions. And when an institutional leader has the courage to name, and we just had a case like this that came across our desks yesterday, where the leader said, I am not looking to bury this. Help me find the language to own what has happened, to invite my community into this, to hold space, and to look forward together. That sort of leadership, it's a different kind of leadership. And some of that is happening now, and some of that is happening because of the moment we're in. So that gives me hope. That's it for us today. Thank you so much to everyone who's listening to our show, and a deep, deep thanks to Shira and to Sheila for your thoughts and for your profound work. Identity Crisis is a project of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Tali Cohen. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, and our music is provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about our show. You can write us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show at the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever it is you get your podcasts. See you next week and thank you for listening.